We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 120 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 31st of October, 2017. With me, the Velvet Glove, Scott. I know you well because I saw you only last night. Last night, that's right. Yeah, we went out to the uh, Centre for Public Christianity or something like that. Their uh, talk on Christianity in a post-Christian world. Mm. And it was a load of nonsense, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) In a nutshell, yes. But it was a good experience. (laughs) It was good for us to get out of our little echo chamber, our bubble, and um, we'll, we'll hold that till the end. Um, okay. So, yeah, the little bit of last item was our excursion to to that. So, well, Scott, you know, no shortage of topics. We've got a million of them. Let's launch right in with the High Court declaring that all those guys are ineligible due to citizenship. And And by the way, did you hear the latest... That Stephen Parry, yeah, there's a, the Senate Stephen president, Parry, Senate president from Tasmania, has um, put his hand up and said that he could be British. I so, think he's resigned. I think he resigned. has he resigned. I th- actually, I think so. Yeah. Okay. I thought so, he had resigned um, from the position as Senate president, oh, but I didn't maybe. realize he'd resigned from the um, Parliament. Itself. Maybe that's it. I'm not sure. Now you've got okay. me worried, but anyway, I mean, he's the guy who signed off on referring these characters to the High Court. And didn't stop and think, hmm, maybe I should think carefully about my own position here. Exactly. I mean, like, that is what's ridiculous. He signed off and he, he said to them, you've got to go to the high court. Mm. And yet he wasn't thinking about it, was he? Well, you know? I think and he was. He was just hoping that it, the decision was, would yeah. come through in their favour and then he wouldn't have to do anything. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um, let's, well, we all know the result. Let's just... Um, Let's just go back to a happier time, or maybe not, an earlier time, and hear what Malcolm's opinion was um, back then. The government is very confident that the court will not find the member for New England is disqualified from being a member of this House. Very confident indeed. The leader of the National Party, the Deputy Prime Minister, is qualified to sit in this House, and the High Court will so hold. What a silly thing to say. I mean, it was always an arguable, a very arguable case. And, Scott, like, things happen in life, in, in all walks of life, where mistakes happen. So I'm in a business where we, you know, wholesale sell stuff to shops. And mm. occasionally there will be a, a mistake or a problem. And what you do is you just say, okay, there's a mistake. It was either in my hands or it was out of my hands and here's what we're going to do to fix it sort of thing. And it's how you deal with the problem that is the important part normally, particularly problems that aren't your own and you don't adopt them. Like mm. he, what he should have done in that circumstance very clearly was go, if he had said, well, we've got a problem here, the High Court you know, may find these guys ineligible. We better stand them aside pending the decision. Nobody could criticise Malcolm Turnbull personally in that situation no, because nobody expects that... him to to vet all of the people and to, 
look after the machine of the Liberal Party. And he, that would have been fine, but, but he just took on personally then an issue, then put his own neck on the line. Mm. Very, very poor politician. Um, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? And, um, you know, I've still got a soft spot for Malcolm, but he has made a fool of himself over this. And, you know, to stand up there in Parliament and say, and the High Court shall say so, you know, mm. that was ridiculous. It really was. I mean, he should have he should have actually said, we believe the High Court will rule in his favour. However, for the time being, he can retain the position of Deputy Prime Minister, but he's not going to be sitting in Cabinet. So-and-so will take over his position in Cabinet and that sort of stuff. Mm. Oh, and that would have Scott, been fine. Scott, which of these sounds mm. do you not like the most? Hang on a second. Or, which of those do you find most annoying? Probably the first one. <laughs> okay. Every, every time you say, and that sort of stuff. <laughs> Dear listener, we had feedback from Jimmy saying, Scott, you've got to stop saying, and that sort of stuff. So, and I would just like to, uh, you know, uh, I feel like a bitch for saying this, but Scott very often uses phrases like, and that kind of stuff, all that stuff, and different variations of the theme. And often in the same sentence, I guess it's his equivalent of saying, um, or like, but it does great with me, and I feel bad for mentioning it, but there you go. Uh, Jimmy, you can go to buggery. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Jimmy's made a good point, Scott. I've got to get this out of your system. Point. So he may have made a good point, but um, you know his uh, suggestion of a swear jar. Well, you know we've actually got a swear jar at the office, and I ignore it. Right. Um, but, you know, so. I wasn't sure what to do. I thought you might ignore a swear jar. So, <laughs> so if if I can spot it during conversation, then that's what we'll get. Yeah, fair enough. Right, let's see how we go. So exactly. <laughs> I give it a week and it'll be over with. <laughs> Sorry, Scott, we've we've digressed already, but um... I know that um, <laughs> it'll give our it'll give our next reviewer something to say about. Um, yep. Where was I? Oh, you've got a soft spot for Malcolm, but you know I got a yeah. soft spot for Malcolm, but he has made a fool of himself over this one. Mm. He really has, and I think that um, he really did come down far too hard. And he said, and this high court shall hold. That was a very silly thing for him to say. He's a barrister. and Exactly. Uh, like, if you've got any yeah, experience in the law, you the first thing you say to a client is, honestly, it could go either way. Because you never know. Mm-hmm. When you go to court, you just never know. It could always go exactly. either way. And it's very and dangerous to, to just predict ironclad which way it's going to go. Exactly, and, yeah. And particularly... I mean, we've got separation of powers in this country mm. where we've got the legislature separate from the judiciary. Mm-hmm. There's a little hint of telling the judiciary what they should be thinking mm-hmm. when a prime minister issues a statement like that. And, and you're almost, you're almost, you know, if I was the high, a high court judge and I heard a prime minister saying that and I was 50-50 on something, I'd probably You'd go the way of saying... Stuff you. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not going to tell us what to do. We're the High Court, and uh, for the sake of it, we'll go the other way on a 50-50. So a very dangerous practice. Um, the other it end- was a very dangerous practice for him to go on like that. It mm. was, yeah, he really shouldn't have said that. Mm. 
he should have said we've got advice from the Solicitor General saying that we believe that we're okay, but that will be up to the High Court to rule, mm. you know? Yeah. And I do think that um, particularly what's transpired now with the questions over the eligibility of the decisions that Joyce made and his deputy, uh, Fiona Nash, I think her name is, um, I do think that given that those questions have now come to light, that it would have been prudent for Turnbull to have both of them stand aside. Mm, we're going to talk as about that. As he did with Matt Canavan. You know. mm, we'll talk about that mm. in a little bit uh, down the track as to, yeah, sure. uh, as to that. I just also want to make the point, yeah, with Barnaby Joyce, that um, when he was interviewed by Lee Sales and she said, you know, well, how do you feel? And he said, well, you know, I, I always felt that it could have gone this way. Well, in that case, you should have stood aside. Like, if you are now saying that I thought it could have gone that way and I, you know, didn't have my hopes up and I rec- you know, I was prepared for an elect- a by-election, if you thought that... He should have stood aside. Yeah, he should have. He should have returned to the backbench. Um, as far as cabinet duties go, um, he should have retained his leadership of the National Party. But I do think he should have stood down from the cabinet. Yeah, and should have and stood Fiona down from National- voting as well. Yeah, in the house. Yeah. So well, if yeah, you're not, that if you got- well, <laughs> if you're not a member, if you're not entitled to be a member of Parliament, and you think there's a fair chance you're not then you should have mm. stood aside. Yeah, that's true. voting, because yeah. you're not entitled to vote. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Mm. It probably would have been better if he had stood aside. Yeah. Mm. Dear listener, due to the wonders of the internet these days, you can quickly look up these decisions. So you can do a quick Google search and find the decision. It's, it's there. So we're looking at Section 44, any person who... Blah 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 is under uh, is is a subject or citizen, sorry, is under any acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience, or adherence to a foreign power, or is a subject or a citizen, or entitled to the rights or privileges of a subject or a citizen of a foreign power. Essentially, any person who is a citizen of a foreign power uh, shall be incapable of being chosen, of sitting as a senator or a member of the House of Representatives. When you knock out the superfluous words, it's a pretty straightforward mm. piece of legislation. So It really was, and that's, that's why I found it absolutely crazy that these guys even contested it, because you would have thought, you know, and, you know, the Greens, they did the right thing. You know, they resigned from Parliament, mm. you know, well, and... Um, You've got to you give know, these things a run. I can understand them giving it a run. Like, hey, it's not going to cost them. We might as well have a shot. <laughs> it costs us, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but it's them who's made the decision to give it a run, so... Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. I can understand that. Uh, actually, dear listener, if you... You know, you don't even have to be a lawyer to... It's quite readable, the judgment. Um, so look it up, and we've got a link in the show notes, and you can... Uh, read the whole sorry saga. Um, interest, one interesting part of all this, Scott, is that in the Australian legal system, uh, it's an adversarial system. So you've got one person who argues one side of the argument and an opponent who argues the other. Mm-hmm. And normally that's not a difficulty where you've got disputes between people. But in something like this, where you've got uh, these parliamentarians arguing why they should... Um, 
not be disqualified, you need the counter-argument. And who's going to give it? Because it's really just the Constitution that's saying the opposite. You've got to have sort of legal standing to, to, to mount a counter-argument. So Tony Windsor, for example, who mm. was in the battle with Barnaby Joyce in the electorate, he had standing so that he could appear and provide a counter-argument. But in this situation, what they, the courts do is they appoint an amicus curiae, which is uh, in Latin for a friend of the court who is appointed to argue the opposing view to what the you know, other side is saying. So, okay. so that's what they had here. Mr Kennett, Senior Counsel, uh, uh, was, um, was appointed amicus curiae to uh, contradict the arguments put forward by counsel for the various politicians. Mm-hmm. And uh, he uh, basically said it's a straightforward section it says if you're a citizen, you're disqualified. And the parliamentarians were arguing, well, you have to have knowledge that you're a citizen of another country. You know, if you, if you don't know you're a citizen, then the section doesn't apply. And the court said, well, that's not what the section says. It doesn't say anything exactly. about knowledge. So, uh, so no, uh, you must, uh, you know, it's not a requirement that you have knowledge and uh, what they did say was that you must take uh, all reasonable steps to renounce your citizenship. So uh, simply just writing a letter and saying, I renounce my citizenship, would not be sufficient if there were some other reasonable steps that the other country requires in order to renounce your citizenship. So if it's, if it's something reasonable some form that's going to be filled in or some other thing you've got to do, then you've got to do that, um, was what they said. Hmm. And, and Sam Dastiari, who was born in Iran, yep. he went through hell and back to get his citizenship renounced. Right. You know, now he went through, he had lawyers over there, he had lawyers over here and that sort of stuff. Oh, oh. And, yeah, all right. And... Uh, <laughs> I hate Thanks, you, Jimmy. Jimmy. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> um, well, 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 he may have he gone had... further than he needed to. If it was extremely difficult to renounce yeah. your citizenship and, and beyond reasonable, like, uh, you know, say North Korea, for example, said that you have to actually physically come to North Korea and enter this particular building and sign this particular form, um, you know, that, that might be... Considered unreasonable. It could be because considered could unreasonable be because you could be detained. Of, yes, the risk yeah. of being detained. So, so yeah. yeah, there's a question of reasonableness in that regard. Mm. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it appears Sam Dastiari went to the um, extreme lengths to get himself completely cleared to make sure that he was right to stand for the Senate. Yeah. Well, it seems like Labor... Sam Dastiari's Labor, isn't he? Yeah. He is Labor, yeah. yeah. Mm. They seem to be more on the ball with these matters than... Coalition. Well, yeah, I mean, it is uh, it is very true, and that's probably why um, Shorten has already turned on the uh, idea of a referendum. He's already said that's unnecessary, right. and I tend to agree with him. It mm. really is unnecessary, I and mean, this is just this just highlights to all the political parties that you've got to have your ducks in a row before you actually run. Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, 
Other interesting things to come from it uh, were that uh, Canavan, who was okay and was not disqualified, the reason was that it was just uh, through expert opinion from Italian lawyers decided that he probably wasn't an Italian citizen. So that's why he was okay. Okay. Uh, the ones who were born overseas were just straight up citizens, and exactly, and yeah. they were uh, disqualified. Barnaby Joyce is interesting because he was born in Tamworth. His father was from New Zealand. Mm. Uh, his father subsequently um, renounced his citizenship. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, yeah. but it was after Barnaby was born, so. Um, so when Barnaby was born, he immediately acquired citizenship rights as a New Zealander. And when Barnaby's mm. father renounced his citizenship, it it had it didn't have retrospective effect. So at that point, the father was no longer a New Zealand citizen, but Barnaby was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really interesting bloody. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really interesting. So, um, so yeah. So that's. Uh, the short story on on what happened, and I think I read somewhere where uh, oh, what did um, Brandis called it brutal literalism as the decision? Yeah. But honestly, it was just reading the words the way they were meant to be read. Exactly. Nothing that, more or less. That is um, exactly you're right. I mean, <laughs> there's no. No two ways about it. There's no hiding from it. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't reflect Australia today as to where it was back then. There's no doubt about that. However, it's the Constitution. You've got to have it. You've got to have it rock solid like that, or there's no point having it. And when the time comes for a republic and that sort of stuff, maybe it's something we can look at then. But I don't. Um, there was one well, there was well, <laughs> yeah anyway um um canavan yeah. he so he he uh he did the right thing he he was mm. the one who was potentially italian and he and resigned and he resigned from Parliament, from uh, from the cabinet yeah. yeah so your thoughts your thoughts dear listener are possibly well he's a good bloke you know good on him he was interviewed as well by Lee Sales, and she said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, well, my first, prior- my first priorities are a new coal-fired generator and supporting the Adani Mine Project. <laughs> <laughs> For God's sake, where do we get these guys from? Where do we get I, them from? I can understand not <laughs> extinguishing all the coal-fired power stations over However, and this is coming from someone that used to be a sceptic on the science and that sort of stuff. However, I have come round and that type of thing. What? And that sort of stuff? No, I didn't say in that sort of stuff. Anyway. Really? <laughs> That's anyway, why the horn's um, there. All right, fair enough then. Um, you, I mean, you're not going to turn them off overnight, but you've got the situation where you've got wind and thermal and... Um, solar generator and that sort of stuff, it's coming down in price. So it's got to make sense to actually use those. I think so. We've got the capacity to 
you know, it's the way to go. But just for your first thing, you know, what are you going to do now? What are your priorities? Oh, yeah, a new coal-fired generator and the Adani yeah, mine. Exactly. We'll talk about the Adani mine later, but um, my goodness me. Uh, Scott, while we're still on this hmm. topic, uh, calling into question the decisions that uh, Joyce and Nash made as um, ministers during this time. So... Uh, we've got, again, um, uh, Section 64 of the Constitution says um, that no Minister of State shall hold office for a longer period than three months unless he or she becomes a Senator or a member of the House of Representatives. So... Um, Essentially, there was a three-month window after the election when it, it didn't matter. You could, be, you could be a member of the Cabinet, Scott, without having been elected mm. for up to three months, but any longer than that, and you need to be a member of Parliament. And yeah. so anything they did in that first three months after the election, no problem, Section 64 of the Constitution. However, uh, things that they've done since then... Presumably, we have a problem. So, uh, got a um, couple of articles here. There's about over 100 decisions that Joyce and Nash um, made that could be at risk. And uh, advice from Senior Silk, Matt Collins QC, and Barrister Matt Albert says, Mr Joyce's and Ms Nash's ministerial decisions are now at risk under Section 64 of the Constitution which requires ministers to be members of parliament. Um, blah, blah, blah. And decisions that could be challenged include a range of ministerial appointments and grants, elements of the NBN regional rollout, water access entitlements, and even Mr Joyce's controversial decision to move a government agency to his electorate. So, dear listener... Oh, shit, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. There's, there's a bunch of different... As a minister, you, you are part of the Cabinet making decisions. There's also just all sorts of powers are delegated to the minister to sign off on things. And, you know, you often would have seen it in relation to immigration where people are appealing the decision of the minister to deport them under immigration laws and things like that. I mean, that's... Peter Dutton's decision as a minister. It's not really a cabinet decision. So it's those sorts of personal decisions mm. as a minister that are going to be called into question now um, and potentially could be reversed. Uh, the articles I've linked to, Scott, kind of make the point, though, that, well, who's going to complain? Who's got... It'll, you know, if Barnaby made a decision one way about something, there would have had to have been somebody aggrieved who wanted a different decision who can be, uh, you know, has got the money, can afford to make a challenge. So finding uh, some, some of these things only affect the actual person involved and there aren't enough other players who might want to subsequently appeal what happened. So... You've got to have standing to to complain. Um, 
And it's also, you know, was it a decision that Cabinet made or was it a decision that he made in his own capacity as the Minister? And mm. was it something that happened in that first three months, in which case it's okay? But also, was it a decision that he made after he became aware that he was potentially in trouble because um, uh, there's a doctrine that applies that um, is basically to protect the public, that if you are acting because somebody in power appears to be in power, then the things that happened are all kosher. Uh, that's really to protect the public. Um, but that implication um, no longer applies when the... Um, when the, the, the ability of the person in power has been questioned publicly, as has been the case here. So particularly decisions that he made after it became apparent that his ability to be there was in question are you know, a very high chance of being reversed. So whether there's anybody out there aggrieved by one of his ministerial decisions or not is up for grabs, but... Certainly, say if there was an, an immigration minister had decided to deport somebody um, in those circumstances where they'd been called into question, if Peter Dutton was one of these characters, then the deportee could certainly have very yeah, good claims. Very good claims, yeah. yeah. So it remains to be seen um, who appears out of the woodwork complaining about that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. I wish I had the horn there because you just said in that sort of stuff. Ah. <laughs> you have to get your own horn. Yeah. Very good. Now, Scott, moving on to other things. Uh, uh, New Zealand, I think we're up to. Let me just check here. Yes, just sworn in their 40th Prime Minister, a 37 year old ex Mormon turned agnostic, Jacinda Ardern. Great result for the non-religious sector in New Zealand Absolutely, anyway. Absolutely, because she took the oath of office without a Bible mm. and she even went as far as to change the wording slightly because swearing, she didn't swear an oath of allegiance. She, I solemnly, sincerely and truly declare and affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law. Mm. So she didn't swear. She solemnly, sincerely and truthfully declared and affirmed. And that is a um, good move because um, she's an agnostic. Mm. You know, it's um, really very powerful that our cousins across the creek have got up to this. And they have appointed someone who doesn't believe in anything mystical or anything like that. You know, she has an open mind because she's an agnostic. But that's about it. You know, it's um, <laughs> there's not much to say for it except it's a great victory for the non-religious. Yeah. Mm. Uh, apparently, 14 ministers and undersecretaries took, took the affirmation of allegiance instead of swearing on the Bible. I'd like to see a statistic on what happens in Australia when they all line up and uh, are sworn into office. How many choose the Bible and how many do it that way? So I'm not sure how many it was in this last government that was sworn in, but in Kevin Rudd's day, there were 
20 something who chose not to swear oh. in the Bible. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, ex Mormon. So, apparently, uh, she. Uh, the same sex marriage is one of the big motivators for her leaving the Mormon religion. So, mm. Yeah, uh, I did read that. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she now says that she's not religious. So, anyway, that's positive for New Zealand. Absolutely it is, yeah. And it is something that we could learn from. Mm. Uh, Scott, uh, what have we got next on the list here is, oh, we've got an um, iTunes review. Five-star iTunes review. Haven't had one for a while from Mr. B. Jones 73. Quote, this podcast is great for those looking for debates about secularism, religious power structures and Western liberal democratic ideals all with a focus on the great southern land. The two main protagonists bounce ideas off each other and occasionally guests are brought in to give different perspectives. I love to hate right-wing Tony! Exclamation mark. (laughs) (laughs) These are not left-wing nutters, I know, as I tend to that description too often myself and disagree with them at times. Rationality and free thought rule. The boys don't mind if you throw in your two cents. In fact, I think they love to hear from the public... Very worth a listen. Thank you, Mr. B. Jones, 73. That's perfect. Fantastic. Love it. Thank you very much. Yeah, we do, we do like that. And although, you know, we, we also love right-wing Tony over here, don't we? It's, it's very good. We'll have to get Tony on again. So, <laughs> uh, Scott, um, in other news, dear listener, well, we're based in Queensland, so excuse us for having a bit of a uh, look at the Queensland state election. So that's been called, Scott. And, it has been uh, it's a quick one. It's only 28 days or something like that between the poll and the, the, the calling of it and the actual polling day itself. So, mm. Mm. It's going to be very tight, dear listener. Uh, the polls are evenly poised and it's going to come down to some preferences. Previously, I think it was the Newman government, Scott, had got rid of compulsory preferential voting? No, the, the uh. compulsory preferences were done away with in the early days of Labor governments. Were they? That was when it was, yeah, it was it was done as a, um, it was a recommendation of Fitzgerald to do away with compulsory preferencing. Was it? Yeah, it was, oh. yeah. So it was Did done away with in... Maybe not Goss's government, but certainly the what, the Labor administration after that would have been Beatty's government that uh, they did away with them. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's when Beatty came out with that line, "Just vote one." You know. So Labor though reintroduced it in this term. Absolutely, yeah. And the thought being that they would pick up green preferences, yes. and it would help them. Yes. But subsequent but to that, the Greens vote has kind of plummeted a little bit. And yeah. One Nation has just surged. Mm-hmm. And, of course, One Nation preferences, preferences are likely to go to the LNP. Exactly. So it's kind of potentially backfired on them. Mm-hmm. There's also a bunch of new seats. Uh, the number of members has gone up by five or six or something Four like new that. seats. There's a bunch of new voters who have signed, who have registered to vote because of the marriage equality debate. And mm-hmm. One Nation has said that they are going to preference all sitting members, no matter what party, last on their, on their ballot. So 
who knows what will happen? Uh, both major parties are saying that they won't cut any deal with with ugly One Nation, and that of course they're going to win the election, you know, on their own merits, and they won't even need them. So that's going to be interesting to see how that all pans out. Well, what an early prediction! I'd say that uh, that Palaszczuk's got it in the bag. Um, it won't take too much of the... The negative campaigning's already started. You know, there was a Facebook thing that I saw today where it said, um, didn't Tim Nichols do enough damage last time he was in office? Mm-hmm. So it won't take very much of that reminding of the 20,000 public servants that got the arse and all that sort of stuff, so on and so forth. It won't take very much to remind the public of what they were facing under the last government and... Uh, it will probably work in her favour. I would imagine she'll be back. She'll probably be back with a slight majority of one, maybe two seats, but that would be about it. One Nation preferences could make a huge... Absolutely, yeah, they could. And if, 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 they, um, if they do preference the LNP, um, then you could see seats changing hands. Yeah. Right, it's... Yeah, because there's – well, I guess they said the sitting members, they're just going to preference last. So even if it's an LNP sitting member, they're going to preference them last. Yeah, I mean, she she said that um, – oh, she threw in a, a bone for Steve Dixon, who's the LNP, who's the, uh, LNP turncoat turn um, One Nation leader in yep. Queensland. And um, she said that uh, – if they meet his high standards of work ethic and that sort of stuff, then uh, she will she will preference them above lost. Right. But that is a it's on a case by case basis. Yep. You know it's you 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 got to wonder what she's smoking at times. But anyway, she's <laughs> um well. You know, Malcolm Roberts, I don't think he's going to win Ipswich, but he's out there beating his chest saying he's going to. Well, we'll, we'll wait and see. Mm. But anyway. One, one small mercy is that uh, Corey's, Corey Bernardi's party didn't get registered in time. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. it, it was, it was that, that, that did bring a smile to my face when I read that today. Yeah. Yes. Um, now, I'm just trying to see his advice here to people. What he said to them is, you know, sorry, we didn't get registered in time. Uh, and he said he urged his followers to cast their vote after considering candidates' stance on safe schools, electricity, community safety and cost of living. So for Corey Bernardi, the number one issue for a Queenslander to determine their vote is it the safe schools program. For goodness sake, <sighs> he's mad that bloke, isn't mm. he? They've got a thing about safe schools. Yeah, Scott. Six officially registered parties can contest: the LNP, the Greens, One Nation, Catter's Australian Party, and Civil Liberties. That seems to be the full name of it. Is that Cat- right? Catter's Australian Party and Civil Liberties, Consumer Rights. And no tolls. They're the ones who are um, going to contest. Mm. Okay. Mm. Um, you uh, gave me a link to an article about a child abuse redress scheme 
and mm. the church says it's not going to sign up. Unless states and territories do. Mm. Um, More moral leadership from the Catholic Church. It really is ridiculous. You got to wonder who the hell's who the hell's um, advising them, don't you? You the, know, they're lawyers. <laughs> well, clearly it's got to be because anyone with any sort of moral fibre at all would say, you know, this was our fault. We were the ones that stuffed up. We've got to sign up to this. Mm-hmm. But no, they're not going to. Not unless the states and territory governments sign up to it, also, because otherwise they could find themselves being sued twice. Yes. So you know, be a lawyer's advice is don't sign up to a settlement that isn't a true final and binding settlement. If you can still be sued in another forum, then don't bother. But, exactly. But if, you on know. the other hand, you're claiming to be moral leaders of the community, then perhaps you'd, you'd cop it both ways anyway. Well, one would have thought that they would want to show the <laughs> world they have changed. <laughs> but they haven't. No. You know, there's a $4 billion bill that's out st- that they think, you know, analysis of the National Redress Scheme proposed by the Royal Commission over a 10-year period was going to cost in total $4 billion. And of about $4 billion, we think our exposure is $1 billion. Mm-hmm. That's well, for you the know Catholic what? Church. Yep. That's for the Catholic Church. You know what? Mm. I don't care. You know, they ought to pay that and more. <laughs> Small change. Exactly. Mm. Anyway. That was that. What, what really stuck in my throat on that thing was they they claimed to be the moral arbiters of the world, mm. and yet they had the opportunity to prove that they had changed, and they've said that mm. no, they can go to hell. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's been a bad week for Malcolm Turnbull because it has was, been. Yes, there was also this thing with um, the raid on some sort of uh, AWU officers in Sydney and Melbourne mm. by Australian Federal Police and it just so happened that the media was there to capture it all and yeah. somebody asked the question and said, well, how did the media know that this was going on? You know, did the minister's office tell the media that this was going to happen? And <laughs> she said no. No. Uh, well, she Ka- wouldn't even Cash is her name. Michaelia Cash is the minister involved. Yeah. And she actually said to Senator Doug Cameron when it was in estimates, she said to him, Senator Cameron, I'm offended by that question. I'm offended that you think so lowly of my staff. Mm. Then she turned around after the lunch break and said, actually, a staff member of mine alerted the media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's a spooky looking one. She's. It's a funny one. And the mannerisms of speaking, it's just yeah. not normal. It's just not normal. It's like she's been in some sort of media training room for five years and and taught to speak in a very peculiar way for a, a for a potential ten second media grab. And it's a she's got very strange mannerisms about her, that one. So Scott, it just it's not a good look when we've got what seems to be Political witch hunt. You know, they, they already had a crack at Shorten with with the corruption into union stuff, and yeah. now they've set up a special registered organisations commission. And on both of these things, my view is, surely if there's something wrong has been done, we have enough laws dealing with financial um, 
misuse of funds. Exactly. That sort of stuff. If yeah. we don't have yeah. a law that covers potentially what they've done, I'd be very surprised because they're pretty much some catch-all laws in there. Yeah, exactly. We, and we've got police. I just don't see why you would set up special commissions unless you're really conducting a, a particular sort of political witch hunt where you, as the legislature, are really trying to also be the enforcement arm. You know, it's not a good look. And you've had one no, crack at him. And I know lots of people don't like Bill Shorten, but let police do that. If you've got, if you've got something on him, tell the police and they can charge him. Mm. It seems it's quite ugly well, to think that it's like it's like we're in Burma or something with the ruling junta is is um, you know setting the dogs on on the scallywag opposition. You know, next there'll be a, a some sort of bestiality charge or a sodomy charge on short. You know, yeah. taking a leaf out of the Indonesian playbook. That's kind of where we're heading. It just feels that way. It really wouldn't surprise me. It's it's got bloody ugly, hasn't it? Mm. You know, it's um, you know, and I'm one that doesn't. I'll put my hand up. I don't really like Shorten either, but I do think that he has got the uh, short end of the stick with this. Mm. So very poor work by uh, Minister Kalia Cash. Kalia Kalia Cash. Yes, Kalia Cash. So she was grilled by some people saying, "Hang on a minute, you've said this on one hand, now you're saying that." And in that uh, committee meeting hearing was Pauline Hanson. Did you hear her comments? Um, I did read them where she said that um, she said, "Oh, Minister Cash, you've you've put the unions, you've you've kept them in line, and that sort of stuff." But um, I'll, yeah. I'll read it. She said, "Yeah, this is Pauline Hanson to Minister Cash after this fiasco was blown up in Cash's face." At, at a questioning committee where you're supposed to be grilling people. And she says, yeah. and it's also in her halting, um, toned voice, Minister Cash, you are a very effective minister and you, have actually, and you have actually have put pressure on the unions. Do you feel that this is a political witch hunt by the former union bosses now who are actually interrogating you over this? <laughs> With a straight face. The, the government has set up a special commission to look into the unions and this little incident's blown up in the face and Pauline Hanson says to Cash, do you think this is a political winch hunt by the former union bosses who are now interrogating you? Incredible. It is. It really is. And, and she's, and like you said, she said it with a straight face too. Oh, mm. Unbelievable. Mm. Mm. Our five-star review mentioned that we like feedback and uh, interaction with the dear listener. We got something from uh, listener Adam who provided an entry for our Federal Secular Index. He gave us some info on Dr. Jim Chalmers. Um, gives him a rating of eight. So as being secular, which is good. Okay. He said there was not a lot of evidence to suggest that Jim was anything but secular in his political views. His personal life is somewhat candid and without glimpse into any form of faith following. Um, he was pro same sex. Excuse me. Pro same sex marriage. Yes, voter. <coughs> excuse me. 
and he defended Bill Shorten's efforts against changes to Section 18C, labelling the changes as an obsession of the far right of the Liberal Party. So there we go. That gives him a few bonus points. Mm. So anyway, um, that was from Adam. Good on you, Adam. Thank you for that. Uh, Dear listeners out there who are working on them, it's a bit slow. We need to... We need to get this finished before the next and election. And I've been guilty. I've been I've been guilty of my slack too. I, I think Jim Chalmers was one of those that I said I'd get done, which I haven't done. So thank you, Adam. You did my work for me. Oh, so. Okay, good on you, Adam. So uh, so yeah, so that's that. Uh, Scott, just wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't have a bit of sort of exorcism-like activity happening in the world. <laughs> We haven't bashed religion enough on this episode so far. It's been very political. Anyway, dear listener, you know, terrible events in um, in Las Vegas with the shooter there. And uh, this is an article where um, a Catholic priest went into, was invited to go into the hotel room where the shooter was shooting from and um, basically to sort of cleanse it of evil spirits. And, uh, Exercise the demons, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he said, uh, I really felt like I was being called upon to be a priest and be a spiritual leader. When he reached the hallway on the 32nd floor, um, noticed a temporary door blocking the hallway. As he opened the door, he said he instantly felt something indescribable. I felt like I was being pushed back, like, don't come in here, he said. On the inside, I'm going, oh, no, you have to go. Um, blah, blah, blah. Um, like the rest of the world, he couldn't comprehend what had taken place. This is what we call the mystery of evil, he said. You cannot use reason to put the pieces of this together. Here's the bit I like, Scott. To bring light and peace into the room, the priest invoked the Holy Spirit with water and a palm he had collected from the lobby... <laughs> He's like a MacGyver of exorcists. He's, he's a resourceful man. He's, he's there and, and I said, oh, Padre, please come up to the room and get rid of the evil spirits. And he's, he's quickly grabbed some bottled water and, yep. and then collected a palm from the lobby. <laughs> he said he uh, instantly felt comfort washed over him. Um, as he headed back downstairs, the hotel staff too felt relieved by Kylie's blessing. You could see people go, thank God, that's good. I really saw the whole thing as part of a healing process, a small part of the healing process. Well, I'm just impressed. I like that. If you're an amateur exorcist out there or, you know, just cleanses of evil of hotel rooms, look for a palm in the lobby, tuck yep. it on your arm and head up in the elevator, fully, fully armed against... Evil. You know what I find, what I found ridiculous as I was reading that, where he said that he felt like he was being pushed back. Yes. I mean, does he try and make us believe that he's more sensitive to that type of thing, or were the first responders and that type of and those and those people who went into the room after the shots had stopped, are they? not sensitive to that type of thing? Is that what he's trying to say or what the story is? Because I think he's just saying that he was uh, a bit scared, and but he manned up. And with 
a bit of resourcefulness did the job. Anyone was happy. That's, that's I think, what he was saying. I think he was just blowing his own trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. Yeah, well, good luck to him, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, look, it's, it's, probably, it's probably worked. I doubt that there's evil spirits in that room at this moment. He's probably got rid of them. Mm. <laughs> no, there probably wasn't evil spirits in the room anyway. It was just, a, you know... Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes psychos pull triggers on rifles. Yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the United States, you seem to have a hell of a lot more rifles than you do human beings, so you end up with a large number of psychos getting hold of them. Mm. Mm. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, Q&A. I mean, I'm completely on strike with that show. Are you, do you catch up with it via a podcast or something? Do you actually listen to it? I've got several of them on my hard drive that I've got to watch or delete or something like that. I haven't watched them. Right. Um, I did see the one with Magda Sabinski where she um, tore the priest a new one. Right. That was pretty. That was fairly entertaining, you know. Um, so but apparently on that show... There was a no campaigner called Karina Ocatel, who, during the panel discussion, argued that legislating to approve same-sex marriages would have consequences for sex education in schools. Um, <laughs> she said consequences would flow, and previously at the National Press Club, she had said, quote, Three months ago in England, a Jewish school failed three inspections as they didn't teach about homosexuality and gender diversity, and therefore, as same-sex marriage is legal, the students were not being provided a full understanding of fundamental British values, and that school now faces closure. So she's arguing that once you change the rules on marriage, unless you're teaching that, then your school will be closed. And... The ABC has done a fact check, and surprise, surprise, the claim is completely baseless. <laughs> so is the school facing closure or not? Uh, it is, but for other reasons. So experts yeah, say that the so. British government's efforts to standardise relationships and sex education throughout English schools by 2019 is not a result of and is unrelated to the legalising of same-sex marriage, which happened in England in 2013. The Jewish school referred to had indeed failed inspections, but this was a result of alleged breaches of UK's anti-discrimination law, the Equity Act of 2010. So this is a law that came into effect in 2010, nothing to do with same-sex marriage in 2013. Um... And um, it was a law that really... I'll just try and find this highlighted section. Yeah, here it is. 
What inspectors found in the school was that leaders were not paying enough regard to developing pupils' tolerance and understanding of people with protected characteristics. Uh, It was not developing pupils' awareness that there are people who have different beliefs and faiths from theirs and, crucially, that those people have the same rights and freedoms as they do. Because this was a hardcore Orthodox Jewish school. Mm. So basically it was closed down because they weren't teaching the kids, hey, there's other people out there with different views than what you have and they've got the right to think that way. So Mm. um, fantastic reason to close down a hardcore Jewish school, I reckon. Um, Absolutely, it really is. mm. And had nothing to do with same-sex marriage. So yeah. So that was um, so that was no campaigner Karina Ocatel. So you know she's got a seat on Q and A. She's she's given speeches at the National Press Club. So I'm going well. Who who is this woman? Where did she come from? Mm. What do we always say on this podcast, Scott? If you scratch the surface, then you're going to find a religious nutter. Yeah. yeah. Which simply goes to show there are nutters everywhere you look. Yeah. So, on this case, <laughs> I heard Paul Barry say that on the media watch. So I've got to keep that for future reference. I do like that one. Yes. That one <laughs> Who is this woman? She's the daughter of hardworking. Oh, hang on a second. Uh, I'll go back at the top. Federal Liberal Party Vice President, unsuccessful Senate candidate, young, fresh face of the No campaign. She wants people to know that conservatives care. Um, <laughs> signed up to work care. for the No campaign <laughs> because she cares very deeply about the rights of children, which she says would be threatened by same-sex marriage. She's the daughter of hard-working Sri Lankan immigrants who worked menial jobs before becoming owners of a liquor store, completed her articles as a, as a solicitor, Travelled to Uganda, and here it comes, folks. You've been waiting for it. Travelled to Uganda with Baptist World Aid, where she helped with goat rearing projects and peanut farming. <laughs> there she met her husband, David, a Ugandan who was also working for Baptist World Aid. Ah, several Victorian liberal sources who spoke to Fairfax Media said Ocatel was placed on the national executive as a proxy for the hard conservative wing of the Victorian Liberals who draw many of their recruits from conservative Christian communities. Ocatel is a church-going Christian but denies she is a member of a faction. Ah, there are no factions in the Liberal Party, she says. There are friendships. <laughs> so there you go. When, you just, when something just doesn't sound right, uh, you think... Uh, Sounds like a religious nutter, then a little scratch of the surface and whammo, you've got one, haven't you? And you'll find that there are nutters everywhere. <laughs> mm. Scott, we've had an ongoing discussion about classifying people according to their beliefs. You were okay with classifying people based on the number of times they went to church, it seemed, but you were still hesitating about categorising people based on their beliefs and values. And you yeah. suggested that such a thing was reprehensible. <laughs> you're and never going to let me live that word down, are you? You're starting <laughs> to sort of come around. But, yeah, just when I see something that might 
promote my side of the argument. Did I send this to you or did I keep it secret? Janelle Louise sent you a message. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I got oh, that. Okay, well, did I send you one about the Pew Research political typology? Ah, I think so, but I probably didn't read it. Yeah. I'm sorry. You, don't need, you only just need to look at the first graph because, I mean, is Pew Research a respected research organisation in your mind, Scott? It is, yes. Then, you know, they've just done a study of, you know, what Democrats and Republicans... Um, feel about certain issues in the US. And look, they've divided up Republicans as core <laughs> conservatives, country first conservatives, market skeptic Republicans, new era enterprises, bystanders, devout and diverse. Um, you know, and uh, basically those divisions are um, based on beliefs. So Let's just see. A core conservative um, holds conservative attitudes across a wide range of issues, especially in their support for small government. They're deeply sceptical about the social safety net, blah, blah, blah. So they have divided up Republicans and Democrats into little subgroups based on their belief. That's Pew Research. <laughs> Seems to me to be a legitimate study. <coughs> but Scott... Thanks to Janelle, <laughs> she's also alerted me to an interview with Sammy Shah. And yeah, I'll just listen go- to this yet, oh, but well, I do intend to listen to it. Well, Janelle. Scott, you're yeah. about to listen to it now. Here we go. Oh, am I? Okay. <laughs> Here we go. And just, just, just as a reminder, dear listener, when I was talking about Muslims, I... Uh, I was talking about a social Muslim, a Muslim light, a by-the-book Muslim, and a killing-can-be-okay Muslim. These are, you know, categories that I came up with independently myself. Sami Shah, let's see what he says. So, to make things easier, I've come up with a classification system of my own. One, normal Muslim. My parents are the perfect living example of this type of believer. They believe fervently in Allah and the Quran and the Prophet Muhammad. Both pray five times a day, give to the poor, have performed hajj, and end all praises with the grateful invocations of Allah's grace. Mummy doesn't wear a hijab, and daddy doesn't have a beard. They have read the Quran many times, but basically ignore the weirder bits, which if you point out to them, they change the subject by asking why you won't give them more grandchildren. Chances are, (laughs) if you were to randomly pick 100 Muslims from around the world, they would all be like my parents. Islam is a part of their life, but it doesn't get in the way. 2. Cultural Muslim This is the second largest group. They don't pray, haven't read the Quran, or have but don't really understand any of it, and drink alcohol despite the strictest prohibitions against it. They won't eat pork though. Pork is the final frontier for the Muslim. On average, the safest place for a pig is in a Muslim country. Mostly, they identify as Muslim because their parents are, but that's really it. 3. Frightening Muslims They tend to talk about jihad a lot. But, and this is important to remember, they may say jihad all the time and talk about fighting the non-Muslims and how the Muslim Ummah needs to rise up in revolt, but you will never find one anywhere near a front line. They're classified as frightening, by the way, only by Westerners who see the stuff of terroristic nightmares in their appearance. 
For their fellow Muslims, this kind tends to be annoying at most and ridiculous at best. They're the ones who usually have giant beards, not hipster beards that only work if accompanied by a ukulele, but the kind of beards that lead to rectal exams at the airport. The women wear the full face veil, and you can't say anything about that because it's their choice to dress how they choose, even though a lot of the time there isn't actually any choice involved, but let's save that for a later episode of this series. 4. Downright Crazy Muslims They like killing people. Killing people abroad, killing people in their own country, killing people in the way of the people they want to kill, and most times just killing people. They like killing more than I like bacon, which means they like it a lot. <laughs> the problem is I don't know what kind and how many of each kind exist within the Australian Muslim community. I need to know what I'm dealing with. Scott, I mean, call me crazy. It seemed to me <laughs> there's a lot of similarities. Cultural equals social Muslim. Normal equals Muslim light. Frightening equals by the book. And downright crazy equals killing can be okay. <laughs> Sammy Shah, Pakistani-Australian stand-up comedian, writer and improvisational actor. Yeah, he's well, he's right to you can categorize people for a discussion. But I still object to using categorization for the immigration department or something like that. Now, Janelle goes further down in the message where she says, mm -hmm. I would want the immigration department to be a little more sophisticated than using broad categories like this. All the same, if during the immigration screening process it's found you have abhorrent beliefs, you believe in death through apostates or your obligation to holy war, see you later, we don't want you here. And that's fine. <laughs> yeah, but when we're talking about immigration and people say we want to ban all Muslims yeah. and people say we want to ban Muslims, the, mm. the problem is the word Muslim is such a broad spectrum. But if it you say on broad, the topic yes. of, you know, do you think Muslims should be banned from entry into Australia, you could stand there and say, I think that the killing can be okay Muslims should be banned. And people go, okay, agree with you there. I think the cultural Muslims should be let in. So, in, you know, because this is the point. Now, in the immigration department, you know, they obviously have to scale people and, and have tests as to whether they're allowed in or not. But, you know, part of the test would be, oh, you're killing can be okay. I just, I just think it makes <laughs> sense. The word Muslim is such a broad category that we need to be able, in discussions subdivide the category of Muslim into subcategories and we have to recognise that in certain situations certain Muslims should be treated differently from other Muslims because of the level of belief and a killing can be okay Muslim should be treated differently from a social Muslim because absolutely. of their belief. Absolutely they should be. You know it just comes down to how you're actually going to categorise people and that sort of stuff. How are you going to get them into those different categories, you know, and that is the difficulty I have with it mm. is, you know, because... Some people would no admit point. to these things. Like, Absolutely, some people would, but I don't think all of them would. Yeah, well, this, this is, that's up for discussion as to whether somebody fits yeah. into a particular category or not, but at least you have a category you can talk about. So, mm. well, there you go, Janelle. That's, that's what I'm battling with here. So. <laughs> 
At this stage, I'd like to thank our patrons who are financially supporting the show by donating. First up, thank you to Sean, Alex and Craig. Much appreciated, guys. You are in our Hall of Fame. You've done so well for us. Also, thanks to Ayami, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig, this, this Craig being the uh, deep throat Craig, Janelle, Al, Ken, John A, Roberta and Ken A. Thank you very much. It's appreciated. It's nice to know that you see value in what we're doing. Other things that you could do if you can't support the show financially would be leave us a message. There's a link on the website where you can leave a voicemail message. That's always good. You could leave a review on iTunes. You could leave a review on our website. You could contribute to the secular index that we're compiling. Or you could just shoot us an email telling us that you're enjoying the show and maybe you've come across an interesting article or two. Anything like that would be great. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, oh, dear. Next topic. Um, gay marriage, just briefly. Um, obviously, uh, they're pretty much the no camper conceding that uh, the cause is lost and Corey Bernardi Erica and the Betts like. Uh, Erica Betts isn't. He said to the West Australian today that he was not conceding defeat in the plebiscite, but. He had 100 changes for Dean Smith's bill. Well, they, so, you know. Well, that's, that does concede, doesn't it? Like absolutely it, it does, mm. yeah, because they've already started talking about what they're going to do to the bill, so they've already conceded defeat, yes. Mm. Corey Bernardi says, um, uh, I note that a senior government minister said we'll sit until Christmas Eve to make this happen, meaning the passing of the new legislation. But Corey says, I don't want to legislate in haste. Could it be sure about these things? Don't want to hurry it. Well, look, Bernardi is going to vote no, regardless of what the what the bill actually says in the end anyway. So, you know, he's already said that he's he's opposed to it and that type of thing. So as far as I'm concerned, we should just ignore him. Mm. You know, he, he can't buy into something and say that he won't support it unless it gets X, Y and Z amendment to it and then turn around and vote no on it anyway. It's ridiculous that we're even listening to that man. He should be shut up. This, anyway. This is the painful world we live in, Scott. We're yeah, absolutely. listening to the Cory Bernardis of the world. Yep. Yeah. Ah, oh, this is a funny article. Well, it's it's a... This one is a religious nutter story, which is just funny on my level, but it's also just completely sad on another level that somebody is so delusional that, that they've allowed this to happen to themselves. But headline of the story, uh, where, oh, did, where yes. did this happen? This is self-proclaimed magic man accidentally <laughs> steams himself to death inside a boiling wok while trying to cleanse his body and mind. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I really shouldn't laugh, but I couldn't help it when I read it. I just yeah. cracked up. It, it, yeah, on the one half, you want to laugh, and on the other half, you think, God, these people have just deluded themselves into suicide here. So Exactly. I mean, like, what on earth made him think that sitting in hot water yeah, so he, and steaming himself would cleanse his body and mind? He basically oh. sits on a giant wok, and then this, yeah. this big steel 
canister is then lowered over the top of him and he's more or less steamed inside this canister while there's, there's almost 100 people standing around watching it happen and it's being done as a religious exercise. Um, unfortunately, he suffered a massive heart attack and second-degree burns during the stunt uh, inside a huge metal pot with a fire underneath. Uh, devotees first discovered something was wrong when desperate knocks came from inside the boiling hot human steam cover uh, after about 30 minutes. They quickly removed the cover to discover him unconscious. What country is this? Where, where are we with this? Uh, Malaysia. In Malaysia? Well. Yeah, mm. we're in Malaysia with this. And... Um, uh, anyway, they've heard the knocking and they've lifted it up and at that point he's in trouble. Um, horrifying footage shows him convulsing uncontrollably as people scramble to get him away from the heat and onto the ground. There's various pictures there on the link and um, what they're saying is he actually wasn't feeling that well prior to it. He was on medication for hypertension. Um, so that might have affected his ability to withstand the elements, they're saying. But here's the bit that I have to read out. Um, despite repeated... It wasn't the first time he's done it. So despite repeated pleas to stop, Lim has been performing the human steaming stunt more than 10 years. One time, staying in there for 75 minutes. During a recent performance of it at a Nine Emperor Gods celebration in Ayatawa, um, Perak, uh, his son said... Food, such as rice, sweet corn and vegetable buns, were put inside the wok to be steamed as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you're going to steam a human being, you may as well throw in some rice, sweet corn and vegetable buns. I mean, no sense wasting that steam. It's... Ah, religion just... Ah, dear idea. Which simply goes to show there are nutters everywhere you look. Mm. Ah, Scott. Uh, Next one here. Um, An article from former... Well, John Hewson was never Prime Minister, was he? He was just opposition leader. He was opposition leader of the Liberal Party. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know... Long-time listeners will know that I've been rabbiting on about submarines and defence spending for a long time. And uh, John Hewson has written an article, headline, Scrutiny of Defence Spending Now and Imperative. The non-transparent, unaccountable defence procurement process, shielding scrutiny of critical aspects by claims of classified information is corruptible at many levels precisely because a competent, independent review and audit is non-existent. Um, The history of defence procurement over the last decade should be screaming that something is wrong. The most recent initiative is the $50 billion submarine project. Um, The combined... Submarine and frigate projects could easily waste more than $200 billion of taxpayers' money over their lives. And he's essentially saying that the Defence Department are a law unto themselves. They uh, are in cahoots with suppliers 
that nobody is properly overseeing and checking what they do and they simply say, oh, you know, it's confidential and military classified information we couldn't possibly tell you and, and consequently they, get in, they are getting away with murder is, is the, mm. the flavour of the article. Um, yeah. And he's dead right. You know, he's got down here, surely off-the-shelf alternatives are worthy of genuine consideration at a fraction of the cost with early delivery, early delivery certainty. Mm. He's right. You know, that, that's your argument about the Japanese submarines. Yep. Yeah, we could have bought them from Japan, fully made and all that sort of stuff. We'd have them here in half the time. Yep. I mean, this is just that attitude. Oh, well, Defence Department says they need that. Oh, they, they're the experts. They know what they need. Like, as if the Defence Department has never made a mistake in their lives. Like, exactly. At some point, somebody's got to take these guys on. Uh, well, one would hope so, yeah. Mm. Article from the John Menadue blog. Uh, recently, we've had this kerfuffle over the NBN and how poorly the whole thing is being rolled out and how fibre to the node is just not providing the whiz-bang service that people would want in order to change over to the NBN. And essentially what he is saying is that if you look at countries... Well, I'll quote a bit here. If you want to look at a country that did this exercise much better, it was New Zealand. What they did was basically ensured the incumbent telco, the Telstra equivalent, split its network operations from its retail operations... And then that network company called Chorus became, in effect, the NBN. So the government retained ownership of the, uh, of, of the network in the form of uh, its version of Telstra. But the Howard government sold off the network and the retail operations. So we weren't left with anything that we could control. Exactly, and that was where the problem was. You know, I thought at the time that they were going too far by selling off the 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 copper and that sort of stuff. That should have remained in government <laughs> hands. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> <laughs> you've been going. For, you've, been, uh, you've been going well, Scott. Yeah, I know that. Anyway, um, <laughs> the copper and that's uh, the copper and whatnot should have re- been retained in government hands, and then. Over time, the NBN could have been rolled out mm. fibre to the premises and it would have been done without political interference and that sort of stuff because they would have just gone on and said it's time to upgrade, so on and so forth, and then it would have been over with, yeah, you we, know? We, we but off, instead... We sold off essential infrastructure. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. We sold off the infrastructure. Now, just if I might just take a moment of the viewer, of the listener's time just to imagine a world where... The infrastructure remained in government hands, but any operator could then sell part of that infrastructure, could then use that infrastructure to provide their own business, to provide services for their business. They could rent part of it. Exactly. Or a license to access it. Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they'd all pay for a license to access it. That means that Optus could provide telephone to anyone out back of Burke or in Brisbane. Mm Mm-hmm. Optus could provide telephone, Darwin or Canberra, that sort of thing. You would then not have to have as many mobile base stations around the country as we've got because they'd all just be the Telstra-owned ones 
but Optus, Vodafone and everything else would use them. Mm. Now, that would have been a hell of a lot more sensible because rather than having Telstra lines crossing over with Optus lines and all that sort of stuff, we just would have had one lot of lines. They'd be competing on the efficiency of their retail operations. Exactly, mm. yes. Yeah. Exactly. So the article here from John Menadieu says, natural monopolies should remain in public hands. We accept that case, for example, in respect of water and sewerage. We don't need competitors laying competing and parallel water and sewerage pipes. He'll point exactly. Uh, Cost-benefit studies of NBNs have been carried out all around the world and the results have been overwhelmingly favourable. There's been almost unanimous agreement that fibre to the premises is the best option. John Howard left Australia with a major structural deficit in our budget um, and his ideological blinkers about privatisation have put us back 10 years in developing a world-class NBN. Yet another... John Howard had a long-term effect on this. He got a lot through. A lot wrong, uh, yes. With long-term damage to this country... Um, Mm. Yeah, he was in power in good times, and that that's true power. When you're in power yeah, in good times, you can yeah. get things done. Unfortunately, <laughs> wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Scott, are religious people more moral? Often comes up in our discussions where they're claiming moral superiority. A recent study we conducted, led by psychologist Will Gervais, found widespread and extreme moral prejudice against atheists around the world. Across all continents, people assumed that those who committed immoral acts, even extreme ones, such as serial murder, were more likely to be atheists. So, what does the evidence show um, about the relationship between religion and morality? And They've done some studies and says when researchers ask people to report on their own behaviours and attitudes, religious individuals claim to be more altruistic, compassionate, honest, civic and charitable than non-religious ones. Even among twins, more religious siblings describe themselves as being more generous. But when we look at actual behaviour, these differences are nowhere to be found. Researchers have now looked at multiple aspects of moral conduct from charitable giving and cheating in exams to helping strangers in need and cooperating with anonymous others. In a classic experiment known as the Good Samaritan Study, and Scott, I have to read the study at some stage, researchers monitored who would stop to help an injured person lying in an alley. They found that religiosity played no role in helping behaviour. Even when participants were on their way to deliver a talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. (laughs) You know what that means, Scott? That they have set up an exercise, a test, where they have said to a group of people, we need you to do a presentation on the Good Samaritan parable and you need to do it over in that building over there. And then they've put somebody lying injured in an alley along the travel route <laughs> to see how many people stop to help them out. That's the only way you could you could come up with yeah. that. That's good. It goes on. 
The finding has now been confirmed in numerous laboratory and field studies. Overall, the results are clear. No matter how we define morality, religious people do not behave more morally than atheists, although they often say and are likely to believe that they do. Um, here's, here's one other great bit about this. Studies conducted among American Christians, for example, have found that participants um, donated more money to charity and even watched less porn on Sundays. However, yeah. they compensated on both accounts during the rest of the week. As a result, there were no differences between the religious and the non-religious participants on average. <laughs> so the religious ones are watching less porn on Sundays, but then they make, they're going harder on the other days. To, they come up to the same amount. Oh, that's funny. Uh, that's one to file away, that study. And I... Somebody who's got time, look up the Good Samaritan test and see how they conducted it. That will be fascinating to see how they pulled that one off. Kevin Rudd's back in town. He's the latest former Prime Minister. Tell it. Tell the. Have you got that one in front of you, Scott? I do. Mr Rudd told the Australian, if I was a member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly or the Victorian Upper House, I'd vote to defeat the bill. He was talking about the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill in Victoria. Mm. Um, What I'm deeply worried about is is one simple practical question, which is at the point at which an older person concludes that they are sick, they are very sick, and they become a burden on their families or their community and the pressure on now transfers to them in terms of making a decision about their life's future. Um, that's been proven to be nonsense overseas where they have got this um, regime in place. You know, you don't have situations that you've got elderly relatives being pushed by their younger siblings and that sort of thing to do away with themselves. It just doesn't happen. Correct. And it is very disingenuous of Rudd to say something like that because he should know that it doesn't happen. And he's clearly just got his Catholic blinkers on and that's it, you know. Um, Yep. It's really very disappointing to hear him say that. You know, people don't choose assisted dying because they've become a think that they've become a burden on their families. They do it because they're in pain and they're leaving a miserable life that they just don't want to continue. That's what it's exactly. about. It's about that's people what, who are exactly in pain um, or, or have really reached a point where, you know, you know perhaps almost paralysed or, you know, you know, in a condition where they've had enough. It's not about being a burden on their families. It's about wanting to check out because they're not happy. That's what it's about. So... They reframe it as something that it's not. So that's Kevin Rudd. Um, and, uh, oh, just a quick mention of one. Again, Q&A, there was that Jesuit priest I was on and he just made the point, Catholics are like herding cats. There's a variety of opinions. Some will think Marriage equality is fine and others won't. And just because you're Catholic doesn't mean that you fit into one category or the other, is what he says. Okay. Um, Scott, we've talked about uh, lobbying, politi- political lobbyists. And yes, an uh, article from the John Menadue blog, um, some Senate crossbenchers led by 
Jackie Lambie, of all people, have released mm. a policy where they're starting to talk about the lobbyists in Canberra and trying to uh, rein it in a bit more because it's totally out of control. Um, well, it is completely out of control when you've got ministers leaving their job on a Monday, and, uh, on a Friday, and coming back on Monday as a lobbyist. Mm. It's really bloody, it really should be criminal, you know. Supposedly, they're supposed to not do it for 18 months, I think, but <laughs> it's not even enforced, uh, poorly enforced. 18 months 18 is months. nothing. Yes. Mm. And Lambie's plan would ban ministers and senior public servants from taking up lobbying positions within five years of leaving office. And apparently this is in line with what Canada and the US do. Exactly. Mm. So, you know, 18 months is too short. And people will make decisions thinking, well, make the right decision here and I'll get a job in a lobbying firm if I need it, if I get bounced out at the next election. It's too soon. You need... Mm. Five years, they're going to think, well, that lobbying firm is going to forget about me by year two or three. Uh, there's no point uh, doing something to curry their favour because the favour won't will expire before the five years are up. So, well, in five years, you could have you could have a change of government too. Mm. In which case, you're then out on the you're out on the cold again too. So, yeah, uh, as many as five thousand lobbyists in Canberra. Yeah, wow. that really shocked me that you had that number of people that were just out there, yep. you know, moving from office to office, you know. Yeah, yep. And still on that score, um, Michael West has done an investigation of... Um, so some of the big lobbying groups are the Business Council of Australia. They've got revenues, like they had $11 million in revenue last year. Um uh, Minerals Council, um, $41.4 billion. Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, $58 million. So just three lobby groups have got more money than any, you know, any media company has. This is just yeah. huge amounts of money. And that doesn't include superannuation, property lobby or the big pharma lobby. It's an enormous amount of money. Um, and, of course, they're all just pushing their barrow for lower taxes and benefits for their section, and many of these are foreign-owned businesses, and their interests do not coincide with the average Australian by any means. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. Um, Scott... I'm conscious of the time, and we need to rattle through a few. Oh, we previously mentioned, dear listener, about uh, Indigenous Advisory Body. You might remember that there was some sort of Uluru proposal for almost like a third layer of government. Um, Turnbull has come out and said, well, we're just not doing it. So... Mm. um, I think Turnbull saw the writing on the wall with that and that sort of stuff. He thinks that, um, you know, listening to Alan Jones on Q&A on Monday night, he did say that um, what they're asking for was just basically a formalisation of what we've already got. If that was the case, that's the way they should have put it. But 
I'm not convinced that it was anything less than what you've just described as a sort of third house. Mm. Mm. Yep, yep. Scott, here's an interesting one. Um, Bob Brown. I may not have sent you this one. Does it say anything about no, Bob Brown in a protest? Okay. No. So former Australian Greens leader, Bob Brown, he's just won a high court case against Tasmanian anti-protest laws. So um, he was on public land um, videotaping some logging operation type stuff and under the um, Tasmanian anti-protest laws, he was um, uh, taken to court and Mm -hmm. he put in a defence and they actually tried to drop the case, but he wanted to continue because he wanted to prove a point. Yeah. Um, uh, he continued the challenge to protect future environmental actions. And the court won in his favour. Uh, well, he won, sorry, uh, by a six-to-one majority. Landmark case. Um, and what he, uh, the High Court said is that there's a right to political expression and we will uphold it. You just you can't just start jailing people on account of their political beliefs or peaceful actions they might take to uphold those beliefs. Um, a majority of the court agreed that the laws, this is the Tasmanian laws, breached the Constitution's implied freedom of speech. It stopped members of the public from carrying out protests on public lands. So those laws impugned the free speech provisions. What do you think of that at first blush? It sounds quite reasonable, yeah. Yeah. Um, But it does make me worry about the um, abortion law protest, isn't that sort of stuff? Scott, you're a budding lawyer. Like... I was hoping to pull that rabbit out of the hat and surprise you. I, 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 I was hoping, Scott, you were going to say, oh, I think it's a great idea. And then I was going to say, aha, Scott, here's the problem, though. <laughs> so, I've been hanging around you too long. <laughs> so, the, the thing, so some implied, like there's no section in the Constitution that we're talking about here. It's just some no. sort of implied. It's implied and that sort of thing, yeah. Right, yeah. that's emerging in some smoke within the pages of the Constitution, um, a right to political expression, which being from the Australian Constitution, overrides a state government law saying, you know, you can't protest in this situation. So uh, that's the problem. Now, um, uh, pro-life supporters who have been fined for holding prayer vigils outside Canberra's, or inside the Canberra's abortion clinic exclusion zone are now going to court arguing that that abortion clinic exclusion zone is contrary to this right that the High Court has dreamed up out of the Constitution. Mm. Exactly, and that is is something that Bob Brown will regret if he has opened up that Pandora's box, isn't it? Yeah. This, dear listener, is an example of the dangers of Bill of Rights because when you start dreaming up rights that apply across the board, then all sorts of things happen. And this is one of the 
consequences of that sort of thing. When you have these wide-ranging Bill of Rights-type laws, you get some bad results. That's scary. Yeah. They could actually win that because they're on public land protesting and based on that Bob Brown decision, it would not surprise me if that exclusion zone around an abortion clinic is ruled against, contrary to the implied freedom of political expression rule that they've just sucked out of the Constitution somehow. Exactly, and that is something that I think Bob Brown will regret because he actually he was the one that pursued that, wasn't he? He was. They wanted to drop the case, and he wanted to pursue it to prove a point. Mm. Well, he's proved a point, but he's also opened up a door for the uh, anti-abortion protesters to get in through. Mm. Yeah. Lyle Shelton is well, licking his lips. He said the same argument could be made um, against the abortion buffer zones. The Australian Christian Lobby partly funded the defence for Cathy Club, who was convicted and fined $5,000 by a magistrate for handing out a pamphlet to a couple outside a fertility control clinic. Oh, they're into it, um, the ACL. And they're using a group called Human Rights Law Alliance. Um, it's an offshoot of the Christian Lobby and... The Alliance provides legal defence for the lobby's strategic cases. So, no secular equivalent. We don't have, Scott, we don't have a Freedom From Religion Foundation or someone like that operating, providing legal assistance in Australia. we don't, and I think we should, yeah. Yeah. We're just... You know, meanwhile, Australian, you know, the Australian Christian Lobby has got groups like their own group called Human Rights Law Alliance. Ah, oh, Scott, dear idea. Yeah. Let's it's finish really, off. It's really very worrying, isn't that it? That is. Mm. Mm. Any budding lawyers out there wanting to start up a freedom from religion, religion um, legal group to help run cases... Get up and do it. It'll be worthwhile. You'll be doing something great exactly. for your country. Yeah. <laughs> um, Scott, our little excursion. So we went to... Yes. Dear listener, we'll finish off with our excursion. Uh, it was a talk given by the Centre for Public Christianity at the Nexus Church in Evanon Hills Monday night. You and I were there and it was good to catch up with Deep Throat. He was there yes. as well. Yep. And the title of the talk was Public Christianity for a Post-Christian World. And unfortunately, well, there was going to be three speakers and the main one I wanted to hear was going to be John Dixon and he was ill, so he didn't speak. So only two. <clears throat> Your impressions, Scott? Um, I thought it was a propaganda exercise mm. more than anything else because they certainly spoke in a way that was familiar, that was uh, hauntingly able to disarm you and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, I think it was all a load of nonsense, really, wasn't it? It was it was very poorly done. Personally, I thought the only way it could disarm me was by causing me to fall asleep and yeah. grabbing my <laughs> weapon while I was asleep. That was <laughs> Honestly, dear listener... When I arrived there, I, 
I pulled into the first car park that was available and I was the only car there. I thought, wow, there's, no, there's going to be nobody here. Yeah. And then um, a couple more cars pulled in beside me as I was locking the car and, and starting to walk up the hill. And as I walked up the hill, I then proceeded to pass another four or five car parks <laughs> sections that were completely full and walked bus, past a couple of buses that obviously dropped people off and then entered a, you know, a very, very nice auditorium-type complex. Um, and there were plenty of people there. Uh, what do you reckon, Scott? 300 or something like that, maybe? Or, that would have been about that, yeah. 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 And, and what really shocked me was the age that was there because I was expecting them all to be senior sits, mm, but they weren't. There no. was a lot of young people there. Yeah. There was, yeah. And initially I was... Uh, what was the word I used? Um, um, I was depressed because I thought, God, just look at the facilities these people have got. Like, it's just mm. beautiful. And the the audio-visual equipment that was there and, you know, there was no band playing, but all the band instruments were there. But just the layout of the room and you, it just reeked of of genuine money was thrown at, was thrown at these facilities. And I thought... We can barely scratch together, you know, pocket money to get things done in yeah. the secular world. And these guys have just got such great facilities. So I was kind of depressed as I walked in. And, oh, God, fighting these guys is just such an uphill battle. But, dear listener, the good news is, by the end of it, I was quite energised because despite all of the money and power that they have and time – the talk they gave was such a load of dross and drivel. It was pathetic. Like, like it really was terrible. It, they couldn't... I, I mean, the title of the talk, Public Christianity for a Post-Christian World, well, they rabbited on about all sorts of things that were nothing to do with the topic. They couldn't logically progress any sort of thoughts on the matter. It was a hodgepodge of just different... Ah, metaphors, and at one stage he was comparing Christianity to a high jump mat. Um, yeah. That was really weird. Um, and he also described a dinner party, and he was saying, you know, if you're going to be a good Christian, think of yourself as being a good guest at a dinner party. And then he proceeded to describe the other people at the dinner party, and you then thought he was going to talk about how you would then deal with those other people as a Christian, but he just sort of dropped that and moved on to something else. And he then got into this discussion about um, the, the two guys who were killed in Bali who were executed yeah. for being uh, drug runners. and Myron Sukumaran and Andrew Chan. Yeah, and he then tried to paint that as a picture of the triumph of Christianity because these guys converted prior to their deaths, but... There was no triumph coming through in the description he gave. It was, it was just really a real it rambling really, sort of it, yeah, mismatch. Exactly. You, you hit the nail right on the head. It was a rambling mismatch of nonsense. But it was um, – the part I picked up on it was the uh, martyrbation complex they've got. You know, yes. they had to – they had to go into the martyrdom and that sort of stuff. Yeah. He said, remember, we're outsiders, you know. Yeah. Christ Christians once had keys to power, but not anymore. We're yeah. outsiders. And 60% of people do not have a close 
personal friend who is a Christian. And there was a big intake of breath in the auditorium when that was, was said. <gasps> Couldn't imagine it. Um, so that was Simon. And then there was... Um, so that was Simon Smart. He's executive director of the Centre for Public Christianity. And the other speaker was Dr Justine Toe. She's a re- senior research fellow. And she then gave a really strange story. She was talking about don't let numbers dominate your life and we yeah. in modern world let numbers and KPIs dominate us, but we shouldn't. We should be more relaxed about numbers. And she was saying how we exercise and get on treadmills and it's a, a very anxious activity. And she went on and on and on about how 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 anxious our freedom of exercise is making us. And, uh, dear listener, uh, what I'm going to do at the end of this is just play a little bit of a tape for 10 minutes after the credits and, um, or after, uh, at the end of this, and some, you'll hear some of our comments in relation to it. And <laughs> so they're the Centre for Public Christianity. And she also mentioned that in, um, Online, somebody had, had said, oh, I wish it was the centre for, for private Christianity. And she was, she was really upset by that, that somebody could say that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who, 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 really ridiculous who, about them is that they, they, they got upset over something so trivial like that, you know. Mm, she was genuinely upset over that, that somebody should say that. So whoever you are out there who coined the phrase, you know, wish it was the centre for private Christianity, you've really... Um, You've upset you, them. You, you've, yeah, well hit a, done. you've hit a nerve with that. So, um, so I was saying to, um, I was saying to um, Deep Throat, you know, it's a Monday night. Look at all these people here. It's it's the social community aspect to it that is obviously getting these people in because it can't possibly be the content. I think they just, it, you know, they just meet with some old friends and get together. I think that social side of it, Scott, is the driving force of it. It really wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Mm. So, um, actually, have you managed to listen to um, True Detective yet, that series? No, I, I not yet. I've got, it, I've got it downloading on um, Foxtel, yeah. I, I, paid, I, I paid a bit of a clip of one of it, of part of it once before. I'll, there's another section from that i will just going to play <laughs> now, yep. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in a little wicker basket being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. You see that? Your fucking attitude. Not everybody wants to sit alone in an empty room beating off the murder manuals. Some folks enjoy community, the common good. Honestly, dear listener, if you haven't seen that series yet, you've got to. It's a really good, grim, <laughs> mystery murder type thing, but with smattering of religious bashing in there. It's a great, it's, it's the perfect combination <laughs> for the Iron Fist. I loved it. And it's got a really good theme song at the beginning as well. It's just the total package. So, you know, that could have been us uh, talking to each other at, uh, at the event. So, 
So anyway, Scott, uh, well, dear listener, um, I'm going to sign off with our usual sign-off and there'll be a bit of the music as usual. But then at the end, um, I'm just going to play about a 10-minute clip, uh, which was us as we were sitting outside the venue and just discussing what we'd seen. And um, so, you know, if you don't like the sound of that, you're not going to miss anything. You just forget about it. Or if you want to hear that, you know, by all means, listen to it. And um, Scott, mm. that... Uh, wraps up another lengthy episode. And, it is a lengthy episode, isn't and, it? <laughs> and we already have, you know, sitting, um, you know, on a sheet here, enough articles for another episode. Like episode 121 is already sitting there ready to go in terms of articles. <laughs> I've got them in front of me. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. So, dear yeah, listener, very good. Thank you. Remember, after the music, there'll be Thank ten minutes of our, of our, ex, you know, our, our sort of um, post mortem of our experience. If you're interested, but we will talk to you next week. Yep. See you then. Bye now. I'm depressed because I was going. Look at the facilities. Yeah. Look at the money. Yeah. Look at what they've got. Yeah. Mm. And after ten minutes of the complete crap. Oh, with all of the power and money mm. that's the best story yeah. you can come up with that's right mm. that's and I was right. actually energised by the end because I'm thinking mm. despite all of it you have come up with a piece of yeah, was there food. any logic at all anything that was remotely rational no I couldn't follow it at all. Not, not even on the point of what they're trying to say tonight no. about public Christianity. Like, no. it's talking. Well, at first, they were sort of like going along and then it just stopped. Yes. It was like. And he sort of set up these characters, yeah. but then did nothing with the characters. Nothing with the characters. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like, I thought he was going to say, well, with this character, you might say this, or that's yeah. a character you want it, but he just set up these characters and then left them alone. He's building for a punchline. It never came. It never came. <laughs> I think they're clearly going to say, you know, okay, there were these bad things, we admit, but it's just outweighed by all the good things. That's what they're going to say in the film. When they yeah. brought up Mother Teresa. Oh, Jeez. yeah. That was going to be my yeah, question. Yeah, I, know, I know you wanted me to have a go there. But but. So when I, when I um, oh. put my hand up, because the girl was with the microphone oh, behind, right. I was going to ask... You're going to put that one, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, well, the film's about good things that happened and bad things. Yeah. So you mentioned Mother Teresa. What category does she fit in? <laughs> yeah, well, I <laughs> I'm just curious. That's <laughs> true, yeah. Probably should have. Yeah. So, um, oh, gee, what a horrible woman. Ah, horrible woman. But, God, goodness. So, but, you know, and when that guy says, well, Christianity's not about heaven and hell, what, <laughs> if it's not about that, what is it about? Come on. You, you admit the existence of the heaven and hell, and you, that's not the end game? Come yeah. on. It's just, I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. Because mm. that's just too crass to admit that you are performing good deeds in order to get into heaven. Is that the problem there? Is it just too crass for him? It's so irrational. I can't. I can't even. <laughs> Holy smokes! They've lost me. You must be incredibly subtle for it. Well, this. I hope there's some food for the podcast there. It's so nonsensical. It's going to be hard to. I've got that much for we've got that much for the podcast for this episode and we'll be I've, got, I've got another episode lined up already, <laughs> like with other stuff. There's so much has happened. Um, 
<laughs> we'll sneak a bit of this in. So, weren't you, you, you saying right at the beginning of these podcasts that you were worried you wouldn't get enough material? <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> Christians out of the woodwork left, right and centre. They are, aren't they? Yeah. One thing that really shocked me was Paul Keating. Yes. Yeah. It really shocked me. Yeah. Him coming out against it. Mm. That was really surprising. Yes. Uh, I found an article I hadn't even told you about where Andrew Denton tears into him. Mm. Mm. So, um... Mm. So, uh, closet, closet Catholic. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it's got a really good line in it because Andrew Denton says something like, you know, Keating told Hewson that he wanted to do him slowly yeah. and now it seems in relation to death yeah. Keating still wants to do it slowly this is the thing that you know, the Victorian law is designed that if you've only got 12 months to live yeah. then you can yeah. take advantage yeah. of this yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's not, it's not yeah. radical, it's it's not not radical I'm sure he's influenced by his faith Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. Mm. I think you're right. Mm. Yeah. Well, it can't be that big faith because he's divorced his wife and all that sort of stuff. So. Well, yeah. guilt, yeah. Catholic guilt, goes it. <laughs> Catholic guilt. <laughs> uh, uh, actually, another message I, I sent that they didn't read out was: uh, is is Christianity like a high jump mat because people go into it after a flop? <laughs> That might be over the top for him. I said, eventually oh, people that wanted... Oh, that was the one that girl was shaking her head when she read it. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, right. Did you see that... Tashi. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I, I sent a few messages, because I had them all pre-prepared. I could just yeah. copy and paste them. Yeah. Was that the first one? Uh, no, the first one was to Justine. If exercise induces anxiety, do you think you should just change sports? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that was the one she was shaking her head about. Because yeah. clearly she was getting him as well as the oh. Justine. Oh. The Tashi girl. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, so the Catholic school one. Mm. Um, was that the one they answered? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. yeah. So, like, you felt sorry for me for my bad experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, he was right. He was, he was right. <laughs> Yeah, but he, he seemed, to, he seemed to want to say it was an unusual experience, that it was quite extraordinary that somebody would have that thought that heaven and hell were school. important. <laughs> so, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's sorry for me that I was subjected to what seemed to him to be an unusual yeah. experience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, even that woman, you know, when the question was asked about marriage equality, how should we respond to it? And she said that's something about you are... We see them as broken. Yeah, broken. Yeah. yeah. But I'm thinking, well, not all Christians think that way. No. Like, how, the goal of these people That's to right. speak on behalf of all Christians, yeah. to say, yeah. this, well, clearly we're all against it. Yeah. Well, when when the not. numbers are 
Well, there we are, numbers, see? Yeah. yeah. What can you but say they, about numbers? Cool. I, numbers? I couldn't get an, I couldn't get a read on what their answer was to that. I mean, were they uh, for it or against it? They, well, they, she was against it. She was against it. Just, just uh, you, know, you know, these are broken people. Yeah, that's true. And, um, uh, and he was just saying, oh, you know, you must treat people with respect and humility and love and grace and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That reminds me of that that imam at that open mosque day I went to the oh, same right. thing, yeah. Right. It's a pustulance that we need to treat like you know Although oh, gay people were yeah, right. Pustulance. You need right. to treat them like a nurse treats a patient with yeah, yes. a disease which is a pustular type yes, disease. Yes, with love and grace and a bedpan. Yeah. That's all the pus. That's yeah. right. <laughs> it's just slice them open. <laughs> Terrible thing to say. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, mm. uh, yeah. There we go. It, it's, these, these excursions are an eye opener, aren't they? <laughs> well, we've got out of our little echo chamber, our yes. little bubble. And, yeah, you know, yeah. we've we come out into it and we walked into it. I thought to myself, no. It shows how small our echo chamber is compared to their echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah, but but their echo chamber is fucking nuts. <laughs> 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 That's thing that struck me was what I was expecting. I was expecting to see a room full of old people, and there were a fair number of aged people, but there was there also a hell of a lot of young, young people, people there. Too, yeah. that, that was a young demographic, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's really frightening, actually, because um, yeah, the other day, last Friday, down in um, the valley, I worked down there, and I was just having lunch, and there were these two young people that were out there walking down in the it's okay to vote no thing mm. it's okay you can say no you know mm. I thought to myself bloody hell you can I was expecting the majority of them to be with grey hair mm. and all that sort of stuff but they're not mm. I went on the last um, March yeah um, last yeah. Sunday no the Sunday yeah. before yeah yeah and there's one one lone Christian with his sign against <laughs> the tide he's been loving it I mean, so? persecution. Yeah, exactly. like, there was a theory coming yeah. through yeah. early on in it was with the dinner party yeah. was, you know, let's face it, we've lost, you know, people hate us. Yeah. Sort of, we're a persecuted oh, yeah, yeah. group. This, they really yeah. built up the, you know, yeah. we're battling against the odds, persecuted Christian yeah, martyrdom complex. complete nonsense in Australia, yes. isn't that? Complete nonsense, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So you were laying Christian at the march. Well, he was, yeah. when, when, well, first there was the rally part, and then there was the march around the city, and the Christian was on the side just opposite the, um, the city hall there, waving like this, and there was a bit of banter going on, but it was quite friendly. And then it all went back to the same pot as Queen's Park, I think, <laughs> where the rally was, and then this Christian was going through the crowds with, with his side. And, but he was really quite friendly. And that I, I, I think he was a bit disappointed because he wasn't, wasn't martyred. Right, right. <laughs> Everyone was just quite friendly to him. Right, right. Well, he was like what we're doing now. He was out of his echo chamber. Yeah. He was yeah, that's seeing right. what the other side that's are right. doing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they were quite nice people being, being friendly to him. Yeah. <laughs> Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think is a good one and direct them to it. 
like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.